Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. And this is Marianne Sullivan. And we're so happy you're joining us this week. Marianne will be interviewing Christoph Don't and Gordon Hodson. I hope I said that right. And they've just edited a book that attempts to answer the question, the question that we pretty much ask ourselves basically all the time, why we love and exploit animals. I think you'll be surprised at how many people are thinking seriously about and writing about this question compared to just a few years ago. It was a very exciting interview, and there's so much research going into this, which I kind of had no idea of. And so I think people will be really interested in hearing this because, you know, it is kind of, as you said, the question. And on the bonus segment this week, I continued my conversation with Christoph and Gordon. And if you're a Flock member, you'll get that link to the bonus segment in your email on the Tuesday after this podcast goes up, or you can always find it on the Flock Facebook group. And if you're not a member of the Flock and you can afford it, you can join for $10 a month at ourhenhouse.org slash donate. What a steal. (laughs) (laughs) Also, as a special thank you to our Flock community, we're going to be doing our Flock Friday Zoom call every Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern. That's 1 p.m. Pacific and all sorts of different times around the world, which is when people from Australia have joined us apparently at five o'clock in the morning or some crazy time. And so we're discussing some of the topics we're struggling with. We're discussing some things we want to know more about. Sometimes we're just shooting the breeze. So if you're a member of the Flock, check out the Flock Facebook group for updates or write to us at info at ourhenhouse.org. And before we get to your interview today, which I'm excited about, there was an article in Bloomberg that we wanted to chat about. U.S. meatpackers don't have many answers for lack of distancing. Hmm. Yeah, this article was written as a result of the the result of the investigation that Elizabeth Warren and Cory Booker uh, did into the spread of coronavirus at, at meat plants, which we know uh, are really slaughterhouses, but we like to call them meat plants, or <laughs> as opposed to plant-based meat is a totally different thing. These are meat plants. Anyway, so they released this report and it turns out pretty much that they ain't doing nothing. Like, like well, they say they're doing stuff. So this is how the article basically starts out. The four biggest meat packers, Tyson Foods Inc., JBS USA, Cargill Inc., and Smithfield Foods Inc., pointed to measures such as staggering shifts and sanitation systems, but gave soft responses when it came to implementing social distancing in production areas of the plants where workers are often in elbow-to-elbow conditions. And I think that what this article shows is what we always say about every time they talk about implementing you know, better conditions for animals or implementing anything, they can't do any of it. It's not, it, it's not feasible. They, they have a business model that does not work. So all they can do is lie. I mean, they, they lie all the time about what they're doing to animals. Now they're lying about what they're doing to their workers. The companies, it says here, gave no indication that workers were consistently being spaced apart on production lines. They just basically said they couldn't do it. I love JBS's uh, statement. It said it increased spacing in cafeterias, <laughs> like where they eat, <laughs> but but not on the production lines. Well, big fucking deal. Unbelievable. Yeah, you know, it makes me think of, I just interviewed Seth Tibbet for, well, I, I, I interviewed him earlier this year for Our Hen House, but I also interviewed him recently for the Faces Summit, which is this conference that, that you can learn more about at facessummit.org, and it air, it goes up next week. 
But the reason I bring that up is because he is, of course, the owner of Tofurky. And he talked about what they've done in their factory to keep people safe. And they've actually they can spread out because it's not a system that is reliant on like this, like quick moving, you know, the meat is going to go bad so they can spread out. There are there are plastic partitions in between everybody. They also, you know, removed all but 10 chairs from the cafeteria, which is what made me think of it because you just mentioned that. But they're completely able to social distance in a in an actual plant meat. Yes. Plant I meat said plant. that wrong. In a in a plant meat plant. That's right. A plant meat plant. Hashtag plant meat plant. The guy who heads up uh Tyson, I think it is, Chief Executive Officer Ken Sullivan. No relation. No relation. Kind of admitted it. For better or worse, our plants are what they are. Four walls, engineered design, efficient use of space, etc. Spread out? Okay. Where? To say it is a challenge is an understatement. I.e., we can't do it. We're not going to build much, much bigger plants in order to do it. And this is the way it's going to be. This article does go into the fact, and they were criticized for the fact that, you know, they were exporting meat through this whole process. So this idea that they have to feed America is, it would be a little bit of an exaggeration, even if anybody did have to eat meat, which they don't, which we know because we live that. But this is the kind of quote you get, candidly, candidly, don't you don't you just always know that it's when somebody says, like, Bullshit. to be honest, yeah. candidly. We are weary of critics in the media who are detached from the realities of this worldwide pandemic, namely that we must produce food and somebody has to do it. Well, Ken ain't out on the line uh, getting coronavirus. You know, Mm -hmm. the somebody he's talking about are his uh, workers. They're getting sick and they're dying. And like, apparently, we're just we're just going to take that. We're just going to take Ken's okay with that, you know, like because we have to feed America. We have continued to run our processing plants, distribution centers, farms, and feed mills for one reason, to sustain our nation's food supply during the COVID-19 pandemic. Operating is not a question of profits. It's a question of necessity. Oh, my God. Do they really believe anybody buys this stuff? That's funny. Cargill said that it would continue to focus on education and awareness of social distancing inside and outside of work. So they're explaining to their workers that they should stay away from people when they're outside of work. Well, that's really helpful. This includes, inc- I love this one. This, <laughs> this, includes, this, this includes encouraging employees not to share food during meals. Well, <laughs> good for you, Cargill. That'll do it. That's where the problem was. People were like tossing their sandwiches across to their neighbor and they were splitting up their lunch pot. What? What? Oh, oh my God. They did. You know, they all said they they installed protective barriers, but where they couldn't install protective barriers, they provided face shields. Oh, yeah. And everybody got sick and a lot of them died. So that obviously didn't work. Uh, Then they say things like this. Finally, there has been no increase in livestock brought in from outside of the United States. All of our turkeys and fed cattle are sourced from U.S. growers, producers and feedlots. Well, who was saying they were bringing in more animals from out from outside of the nobody is claiming that. In fact, the point has been made that they they couldn't even manage to to slit the throats of all the American animals. Why the hell would they have brought in animals from outside of the United States or more? Ah. Just the bullshit. It's just like uh, you could wade through it. You're feisty today. Oh, I like yeah. it. 
They make me yeah, mad. that's it's 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 a little unreal. I mean, it, but yet it is here. It is real. Well, okay. Switching gears. I mean, we know that there are places like Tofurky and there are places that are working to actually bring some kind of sanity into this complete insanity. So that makes me happy. So things have been a little intense lately, just in the world, to say the least. Really? Yeah. Really? <laughs> I didn't know about that. So so we watched a movie the other day to sort of be a counterpoint to that. And it was not your first I time. I had recommended this movie to you. Yes. And and I will in turn recommend it to anybody listening to this who is sobbing into their cereal right now, <laughs> which is the, the movie is Christopher Robin and it's a Disney production. And it's about, well, it's about Christopher Robin all grown up. And he had he had forgotten all about Pooh, but. Then Pooh reappeared in his life at just the right moment. And the reason why we're bringing this up is because obviously stuffed animals are real. <laughs> yes. Well, this I mean, this is an ongoing problem in our lives. We both have like giant problem, really, really close relationships with a number of stuffed animals. I realized that we're not alone. There are a lot of adults. I, I, I remember when I was watching that show, The Repair Shop. It was it's a British show and I just loved it. And it was a reality show about people who have these beloved possessions and they bring them in to have them repaired. And the people who brought their stuffed animals in, like they didn't want to leave them. <laughs> like They were upset that they were leaving them there, that like the relationships were obviously very strong. It made me feel a lot better. At least there are other people in the world who are crazy. And, uh, and, uh, but I've always worried about admitting how much I do find solace and reality in my stuffed animals because people will think that that's how, how we relate to real animals, that we're just making it all up. Actually, I'm not making it all up when it comes to real animals. And actually, I'm not making it real up when it comes to stuffed animals either. <laughs> okay. This is a safe space thing. This is between you and me and whoever's listening. Right. And whoever's listening is not allowed to repeat this. It goes no further than us. Yeah, this is this is definitely a thing. It's funny because the other day I was on a meeting and uh, for a bunch of reasons, I had to take the meeting sitting in my bedroom. Like there's a little love seat at the end of my bed. So I was sitting on the love seat, but the video was sort of facing my bed, like the camera and I was like nodding and being, you know, being professional. And I'm looking in the little, <laughs> looking in the little Zoom box with me in it. And I realized like a bunch of my stuffed animals are in the shot. So I, so I turned the vi- so I turned the video off, and I quickly moved my stuffed animals, <laughs> and then I turned it back on. <laughs> so like, if anyone was actually paying attention to me. They would have seen it would have been like a TikTok video, like the video, the stuffed animals are there. No, they're gone. I have well, for some those feelings of you who are listening, who, yeah. who are thinking, OK, didn't realize it. These women are crazy. Like, just forget we said this. And for those yeah, of we you who are listening, who are, who are saying, yeah, watch Christopher Robin. You'll like it. Right. Yeah, I agree. So I have a... Um, an entertainment related thing to bring up. And I told you I was going to do this. Can I do this now? Yeah. I don't know what you're going to do, but yeah. I don't know whether this is going to be easy or hard. Anyway, I was looking out my window today and I saw the FedEx truck and it slowed down and I was all excited. And then it speeded up again. (laughs) It was very sad. That's so sad. 
And as sometimes happens to me, a song started going through my my head. And these were the lyrics that went through my head. And I want you to see if you can name the song, the show it was from, and who played the character who sang it in the movie. Way to put me on the spot. Okay. Well, I don't know. This could be really easy. I don't know. All right. All right. It may be something for someone who is no relation, but it could be something special just for me. No. You don't have it? Ooh, I don't know. I don't have it. Well, I'm going to sing it and see if that makes it clear. <laughs> okay. It could be something for someone who is no relation, but it oh, could yeah. be yeah, yeah, yeah. something special. Is it, is it the Music Man? Is it the Music Man? Yes. Okay, okay. Just, thank God. Just okay. for me. All right. So it's the Music Man. And then what was the next question? The name of the show. Oh, no. The name of the song. Oh, uh, I, I don't think I'm going to get the name of the song. So wait, 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 wait. Is it something special? No. Oh, damn it. Okay. And then who sang it in the movie? I think it was like maybe someone whose name is Barbara. (laughs) (laughs) There were a lot of Barbara Broadway people. I don't know, but I got one out of three. What was it? Who was it? The, The name of the song is The Wells Fargo Wagon. Oh, yes. Okay. That's right. And... Well, Fargo, da 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 da. Nobody, we're going to lose all of our listeners on this episode. I know they're they're, they're gone by now. Poor Christoph and and Gordon. Should I just tell you, the bearded vegans have these specials going around about their their discussions of like cultural misappropriation regarding Thug Kitchen, and we're singing Broadway. <laughs> That's fine. Whatever. Yeah, to each it's their totally own. fine. It's totally fine. Anyway, so what? So the name of the song was the Wells Fargo thing, and who played it in the in the movie? Ron Howard, as oh, a like right. five Ron year Howard. old. No, I Ron saw Howard. it. That's right. I did know that, of course. Oh, it's I'm so annoyed. It was like in my brain before he played Opie on the Andy Griffith Show. Before he played Richie on Happy Days. Before he became a movie director and producer, mm-hmm. he sang that song in The Music Man. That's awesome. That was fun. I enjoyed that. I hope nobody's hung up on us. Probably they have. That's okay. The people who you interviewed today are like, what's the time code to get to our interview? <laughs> what's the time stamp? We need to tell that. Oh, to I know. And, and they were they were really smart. And, we're smart. And serious people. You know. So I'm moving back to New York from where I've been. In, I've been here in L.A. I've been in California since 2016. And I realized that I have been in California basically for the entirety of the Trump administration. Like, it's like I needed to be in California during it for some reason, because that was the amount of time I've been in California, which is like, you know, hopefully when I move back, everything will change. But that being said, uh, it is less than three months to the U.S. election. I have on my to-do list for moving to re-register New York. Are you registered? I am registered, but I have not submitted my application to vote absentee. Anybody can vote absentee in New York, but you do have to send in an application, and I'm sure they're going to be very backed up. So I really feel irresponsible about that, and I have to get that done. So uh, I just wanted to remind everybody, check to make sure you're registered if there's any question at all. Maybe if even if there isn't any question at all, just check. And and if you need to vote absentee, take care of whatever needs to be done, if that's even possible where you are. And as far as the presidential election goes, even if you are in a state, you know, because of the Electoral College, 
a lot of us feel that it's a foregone conclusion and maybe may not feel that it's that important because either one one party or the other has such a predominance in their state. Well, forget that. Uh, even if you think that your candidate will win overwhelmingly, you have to vote this time. Everybody. Absolutely. Totally. Not going to say who to vote for. Just saying that you have to have to vote. Sorry to all of you out there who aren't in the U.S., but I think you'll forgive us. Yeah, I'm not sorry for you if you're not in the U.S. I'm jealous of you. <laughs> and there, there, there. Now you know who we're voting <laughs> That's for. That's very true. And they won't even they won't let us in either. I don't blame mm. them. I don't. I don't blame them either. I mentioned a moment ago the Faces Summit. I just want to say again that if you go to facesummit.org, you'll learn all about the Farmed Animal Conference e Summit, which is happening this coming week, August third to the ninth. And you register in advance. It's free. And every day between August 3rd and 9th, you'll have access to three new video interviews for 24 hours featuring our movement's most important thinkers and leaders and activists as they discuss the most relevant issues for farmed animals today and in the future. You can also watch later or download the videos and audios for lifetime access if you purchase the summit pack. So you could either do a purchase or you could do it for free. And it is a benefit of Animal Place. And I had the great opportunity of interviewing four people for it. So you'll see me all over it. And they were really meaningful interviews. So I hope you check it out. Yeah, that sounds really cool. Another thing that's really cool is supporting vegan businesses right now. And as you know, a lot of them need extra support. So we're shouting out a few each week. Some of them are places that we know. Some of them are places we heard about. Some of them are places that that submitted. Uh, and if you know a vegan business or have a vegan business, you can also submit an application at ourhenhouse.org slash vegan businesses, all one word. First of all, I want to mention one of our fa- very, very favorite people in the world, and that's Lori Johnston. She does all of this graphics work for Our Hen House. If you, if you, have, if you know, have noticed that Our Hen House has a certain look, that's because of Lori. And she does it as a volunteer, and we are incredibly grateful to her because she's so talented. We're just very privileged to have her work representing us. And she has her own business, Two Trick Pony, and they produce messageware. And um, actually, I think it started out, I'm not positive, I think it started out with, and it still is so well known for their greeting cards. That, but also they also have tote bags, and we, lo- we just love her products. So you can check them out at twotrickpony.com and on all the social media. Yes, totally. And Lori has been working with us for like, oh, probably a decade. She's an incredible person, an incredible artist. And and we have one other business to shout out for you. We always want to make sure to include a black owned vegan business. And this is one that I've had the pleasure of sampling myself. And it's called Happy Ice. And I know at first you might be like, really? Ices? But these are ices that taste like ice cream. And and I don't understand how they did it because it's basically magic. And they're all rainbow. If you go to Instagram.com or if you go to Happy Ice and Instagram, you'll see what I mean. They're a premium water ice product made from a secret recipe from Philadelphia with an artistic L.A. twist. And it has this like smooth, rich, creamy texture of an ice cream. And it has the light, fruity refreshment of a sorbet without egg or dairy of any kind, of course. I want that. You need it I right now. Right it's now. like 97 degrees there. It's I 95 know. degrees. It's 90. I just want everybody to know it's 95 degrees as we're recording. And I don't have air conditioning downstairs. Okay. Which is where I am. And I had to shut all the fans off so that it wouldn't be annoying to you. So you better be grateful out there. Well, all right, go on. The results in combination. If I had a happy ice, I wouldn't, I would be happy. 
It is happy ice. You have sad ice. You have sad heat. This is the opposite of your life. This is happy ice. But the resulting combination from their like special secret sauce is just really delicious. And it's this vibrant explosion of colors and flavors. It looks like just like a gay rainbow, basically. I love eating a gay rainbow that brings happiness to any situation. And anyway, so they they recently opened a brick and mortar in my neighborhood at 7324 Melrose. And they also have two trucks. It's just really, really cool flavors that they've got. It tastes like you're eating ice cream. By the way, I can't get in anymore. I went to Vegan Street Fair before COVID and I had it there because they were there. It's basically like a, you know, vegan street fair. (laughs) And they had it there. So I had it. But now that they opened their brick and mortar, the line, which is the social distant line to the window, which is open, which is on the street, I mean, so you don't have to go inside, is like every six feet increments people are standing there but they they have the the world famous rainbow rocket which is what i had strawberry lemon lush watermelon lush sour apple lush mango madness cherry bomb blueberry blast lucky lemon and pineapple potion so good anyway so yummy love seeing businesses like that but i also love seeing guests we are all over the place on this podcast you got your happy ice you got your broadway you got your discussion of these people in the meat slaughter plants where they can't get further away from each other and are slinging sandwiches at each other in the lunchroom. And you've got your PhDs, <laughs> who are our guests today, which is Christopher Don't, PhD, and Gordon Hudson, PhD. They're the editors of and contributors to Why We Love and Exploit Animals, Bridging Insights from Academia and Advocacy, which is published by Rootledge. Christoph is a senior lecturer in psychology at the University of Kent in the UK. He is the founder and director of Shark Lab, dedicated to the psychological study of human-animal relations. He investigates the psychological underpinnings and ideological roots of speciesism, racism, and sexism, and the moral psychology of eating and exploiting animals. Gordon is a professor of psychology at Brock University in Canada. His research interests include prejudice, dehumanization, and speciesism, ideology, and intergroup contact. They will be joining Marianne right after this. We're excited to announce Encompass Essays, Pursuing Racial Equity in Animal Advocacy, a collection of essays written by farmed animal protection advocates who are committed to exploring and prioritizing racial diversity, equity, and inclusion as we work to create a more just animal protection movement. The essayists contributing to this virtual anthology were all attendees of the 2020 inaugural Encompass DEI Institute, a virtual training for farmed animal protection advocates, which was originally held in February 2020. Our hen house was a proud sponsor. The authors, myself included, are a group of advocates who wish to document our stories and processes in an exploratory space from which we can grow. And we'd like to hold ourselves and our peers accountable and create new ways forward. Encompass, the nonprofit that organized the Institute, aims to make the farmed animal protection space more equitable by working with organizations to operationalize racial equity and with individual advocates of the global majority by helping them cultivate their leadership potential. Encompass Essays is a collaboration between our henhouse, Encompass, and Sentient Media. I am lucky enough to be the editor of the essay collection. The only way to be an effective animal activist is to centralize anti-racism around our advocacy. 
which requires a deep dive into the ways white animal advocates have historically used our white silence and white apathy to ensure that the animal rights movement has been centered around a white supremacist culture. We need to change that. This essay collection will provide a new, necessary way forward, one in which we can be held accountable for centering our anti-racism in the fight to end the exploitation of animals. Sentient Media, where these essays will roll out throughout 2020, is a robust digital platform that reports on animal agriculture and its impact on the world, as well as fosters a writer's fellowship program where newer journalists are mentored by seasoned ones. Beyond the digital presence for Encompass Essays, which includes plans for audio versions of the essays, which will air on the Our Hen House podcast next year, Lantern Books will be publishing an anthology version of the collection in both hard copy and digital form. The book is set to be released in late 2021. Down the road, we will parlay the work of the collection into a springboard for digital panels, collaborative discussions, and hands-on trainings. Additionally, the hope is that this is the beginning of a three-part series where the authors will revisit our anti-racist work and provide updates to be published in future follow-up collections. Learn more about Encompass Essays, Pursuing Racial Equity in Animal Advocacy by visiting sentientmedia.org slash encompass essays. Again, it's sentientmedia.org slash encompass essays. Welcome to our hen house, Christoph and Gordon. Thanks very much for having us. We're pleased to be here. Yeah, thanks for inviting us. We're very excited to be on your podcast. I am very excited to have you here as well. We have tried to record this interview 500 times, I think, and had tech problems. So I'm incredibly grateful for you for hanging in with me. The name of your book, I think, asks the question that most of the listeners of this podcast struggle with every single day of their lives, why we love and exploit animals. It is so inexplicable to most of us. So we're thrilled that you put together this collection of writings, and some of which uh, you wrote, and and many of which uh, were written by others. And, you know, I feel like a few years ago, maybe not that long ago, and I don't pay that much attention to the academic scene, but when there was research about animals, or people talked about animal studies, it had to do something like portrayals of the horse in 18th century European painting, and not something I was particularly interested in. And all of a sudden... I find out there seem to be all these people doing research and writing about the real questions that face us politically and socially about our relationship with animals. Has there been an enormous shift? Am I right? Yeah, I think so. I think that's a a correct observation, at least in our own field in psychology. We've seen a huge increase in uh, a number of studies on topics uh, like meat consumption, like speciesism, and how it connects to our social psychological understanding of human-animal relations. That's also one of the main reasons uh, why we put the book together. The field has exploded, really, and we thought, let's bring that now together to give an overview of, of many of these research lines. It's very exciting, and particularly exciting is the subtitle, Bridging Academia and Advocacy. One of the reasons I'm excited to have you talking to us is that you are academics talking to an audience that is mostly activists, and are you really hoping that that this book will have an impact on people who are actually doing this work? Absolutely. In a sense, we're a bit uh, puzzled sometimes at how academics and activists have some of the same goals, but seem to inhabit very different uh, worlds and, and not necessarily talking to each other. And we really genuinely feel that both sides, not sides, both groups have a lot to learn from each other. 
by listening to each other. And, and it's, it's a little bit cliche, but sometimes, you know, authors say we wrote the book that we ne- felt was needed out there. And that was definitely true in our case. We really felt that it would be great to bring people together uh, with that have different sort of perspectives and quite different focus in, in what their uh, goals are and whatnot and bring it together into a single volume. So we were really excited. To be honest, we didn't know at the first whether that was pure genius or whether it was folly. But we seem to be having positive reactions to it. So we're quite pleased about that. Well, I'm certainly positive about it. I love this idea. Your own backgrounds, I know, are in psychology. I think, but you're both political psychologists, which I'm not sure I've ever heard of before, but one can obviously imagine what that is and how important it is right now in this moment when we find people's political attitudes so hard to understand. But before we get to that, what other fields of study are most likely to provide useful information and are included in the book? Yeah, I think we need to draw upon like all kinds of different fields to get a better understanding of our, our relationships with animals and, and why we exploit them. So our own field is definitely key to this uh, understanding, psychology, but also from the broader perspective, the contextual perspective, where we have fantastic sociologists uh, approaching these topics to show that uh, part of the species culture that we live in is, is fundamentally systemic. So it's uh, really rooted in the, in the context and the culture where we live in the countries that we live. We've learned a lot about the thinking on these topics as well from philosophy and ethics and morality. So that provides a solid basis of, of the way we think about animals, but they typically stay away from the empirical research. So that's where psychology and sociology can come in to provide an empirical basis to these research questions. We might be a little bit biased in that we're both trained as psychologists and sort of gravitate toward the psychology here. You know, in many ways, a lot of the psychology is really interesting because a lot of the ways that we think about and treat animals has to do with uh, rationalizing our thoughts, justifying it, turning a blind eye to what we're doing. And a lot of that taps into a lot of psychological processes. So it's really interesting. Uh, this sort of uh, awakening that's happening in psychology is, is realizing that studying human-animal relations is probably one of the best ways of studying human nature because it, it really highlights all the biases, rationalizations, justifications, our, our thinking about dominance and superiority. It it's really nicely captures a lot of that. So we are a bit biased maybe as being psychologists, but we really see the relevance to it. But we really wanted to draw people from other disciplines as authors of this book and hopefully readers as well. We all know that. As vegan animal activists, we all know that we don't understand why people seem to love animals and continue to do this. It's so inexplicable. Are there any particular highlights or or just an overview of what's in the book? I know there are some people uh, in there whom the listeners to this podcast will certainly have heard of. Do you just want to highlight, just give people an idea of what they will find if they if they delve into this book? We, we have a lot of psychologists, social psychologists in the book, talking about the, the meat paradox, for instance, why we, on the one hand, love animals and, and claim to care about animals, but then keep eating them on a daily basis, and which involves a huge amount of animal exploitation along, uh, along its way as well. That's definitely one of the major topics. Then we also focus quite a bit in some of the chapters on the interconnections between human-animal relations and human intergroup relations. And that's both from a psychological perspective as well as sociological perspective, where we highlight that systematic biases against human outgroups is uh, quite similar to how we are biased about our evaluations and judgments and treatment of animals. 
that's kind of going to that intersectionality approach. And in our own chapters, we are coming from that intergroup relations perspective and social psychology. But then we also have um, someone like Carol Adams uh, from her own scholarly approach, uh, having a chapter in her book. There are specific chapters on very detailed questions about our thinking about animals and how it's biased and how it's uh, how we can understand why we see animals, how we see them. There's an article in there by Jean, Jean Bauer, right? Like you really do reach out to activists. Yeah, so that, that's actually a, a major third part of the book. It's like we also invited animal advocates to let them speak their ideas and their minds about how to address animal suffering. So as you might know throughout the book, a lot of it is quite pessimistic. It's, it's highlighting the, the negative parts of how what we do is actually quite uh, nasty and exploitative. But then we have these animal advocates coming uh, with a more pragmatic solution to it. How can we address animal suffering? And also they give a lot of good insights from um, psychology, how to reverse the patterns and change our behavior and how to reduce meat consumption or, or go vegan. So yeah, that's the type of things you can expect from the animal advocates. And they really are in the field. So they, they know what works or often have a better idea what works and what not. And that's kind of the type of chapters that we wanted to open the conversation between animal advocates and uh, academics as well. Christoph raises an interesting point there, actually, sort of in thinking about it. Someone might expect that the uh, the animal advocates might be more sort of pessimistic and the academics more cheery in their outlook. But actually, when you read the book, you see the opposite. Academics tend to really focus on the negative and the exploitation and the dehumanization and all those things. And I think one of the nice things that the advoc animal advocates brought to the book is actually um, ideas about solutions and optimism. And I think really putting them together, it's kind of interesting, but it might be a little bit counterintuitive to what some people might think. Yeah, it, it is. But when you think about it, anybody who's been in animal activism for a long time has to be by nature, just by, by regardless of experience, has to be by nature a somewhat hopeful person, or you would just either quit or shoot yourself. <laughs> But let's not go there. We've always said it at our hen house that uh, hope is our strategy. We may not have hope like really sincerely. <laughs> we don't go there. Hope is what keeps people going. And so you just have to use it. Let's get a little into your work because I, there's so much fascinating stuff in here. And one thing that was counterintuitive for me is that I have always thought that the one thing that kind of crosses the increasingly, incredibly divisive political lines in our country, or this country, not yours, well, yours as well, because it's all over the world, it's just highlighted here, is our attitudes towards animals. I mean, I just have always thought there's people on the left who like care about animals, there's people on the right who care about animals, but then you've done the research, and you seem to state pretty compellingly that that's just really not right, that attitudes towards animals actually do follow these same political divides. So what does your research show about political ideology and how we feel about meat-eating and animals? It's interesting because, as you point out, and you can certainly see it across the world and places like the U.S. in particular and Britain, where almost everything is politicized. So something like meat consumption, you're right, you would think, and per perhaps even a few decades ago, people would be surprised to think about uh, political ideology being related to things like animal welfare and, and uh, meat consumption. But we're finding and others are finding pretty clear evidence that there is a political divide on this, that those on the political right end of the spectrum are more willing to exploit animals for research or food or whatever. 
and are much more willing to consume meat. We've done some research showing that when people on the right uh, attempt not to eat meat, they're more likely to lapse back to eating meat. That's in part because they don't quit meat for uh, sort of animal or social justice reasons, but perhaps health reasons or something like that. So we're finding that political ideology is actually quite related to meat consumption, animal exploitation, in a way that I think is surprising people, but we're finding this very reliably. One of the things that uh, Christoph and I, in one of our first publications together, found was that this was true even when you statistically account for or control how much uh, they like uh, the taste of meat. In other words, people with right-leaning ideologies are exploiting animals and eating meat more, even when you, you know, take how much they like the taste of meat out of the equation. And we start looking at things like beliefs in dominance of humans over animals and whatnot. So meat consumption has turned out to be much more political than I think even we were expecting it to be. Are you saying that people on the right, their thinking is, well, you say that all people's thinking about animals is distorted in some ways. And I do want to go into that. But is that just emphasized in uh, people who on the right? And is there certain personalities that, that lean towards that kind of thinking, both vis-a-vis animals and other social issues? In the psychological literature, we quite often think about people on the political right as being so, some of the key characteristics are either endorsing or accepting hierarchy, just the idea that some group should be on the top, and also a preference for the status quo and conventions. And when you think about it in those terms, I think you can really see why it applies, political ideology applies to animals, because it's a lot about hierarchies and rights. And, and you know, the status quo has been that humans have used animals for a very, very long time and continue to. It's hard to find an aspect of, of human life that doesn't in some way exploit animals. When you think about political ideology in those terms, I think it makes sense as to why it's relating to our, our actions and our thinking about animals. So why isn't everybody on the left an animal rights activist? <laughs> like, like, what goes wrong there? Why is it that this is, though it may be more emphasized with people on the right, it's everywhere. I mean, there's loads, we all know there's loads of people who are just the finest people in the world on many social issues and devote their lives to to human rights and, and are much better than I am in every single way, except they, they, they just don't even think about animals. I would be hesitant to sort of, like, it is, it is surprising. I think, though, the infrastructure of animal consumption is so completely, we can barely see it. It's like, you know, people talk about, it's like we're in a fishbowl. The animal exploitation infrastructure is around us, so people on the left don't see it either. But one thing I would certainly like to say is like I wouldn't want to politicize this. I feel like uh, meat consumption already is getting politicized. And I'm worried that if we, in a sense, try to politicize it more and try and get people on the left more active around animals, it could just polarize things and meat consumption. You know, people on the right uh, might eat more meat in defiance against because it's turned into a political issue. So most people want to be good people. They want to do the right thing. They want to think of themselves as moral. And I think some of the objectives are to get more people to recognize the disconnect between their own values of doing no harm and what people collectively are doing to animals. All right. So I, I was going to wait a little before we got into like, all right, how do we fix this? But you've taken us right kind of right there. Like, obviously, we don't want to fix this in a way that only people on the left stop eating animals because animals really don't care about the political persuasions of the people who are consuming them. I mean, animals need everybody to care and everybody is capable of caring about animals. I think that's true. So let's let's talk a little bit about some of the solutions to address this issue without getting political. 
that's one of the hardest questions. It's it's kind of we we haven't figured that part out yet, really. There's not enough empirical evidence yet to really say what's the solution to this problem. And part of it is us also trying to be carefully taking into account ideological values and, and politics, really, but not making it too salient in campaigns or in, in messaging, but just trying to approach different audience with different ways and different messaging strategies. If you, for instance, have an audience that's mainly conservative and, and especially socially cultural conservatives, so people who deeply care about traditional and family values, you just don't want to like interrupt all their traditions uh, in terms of eating patterns uh, by saying, well, you, now you need to stop uh, your, your traditional Christmas meal or you need to give up your turkey during Thanksgiving without having a proper alternative to replace that meal with a with a, an equally valuable uh, other alternative, but without the meat and without the turkey. So that's that's where you get in a lot of pushback, where you kind of say you, you can't do this for moral reasons, but you, you do not offer a solution to the problem. So I think that's kind of where we, as animal advocates, need to be very careful about when approaching socially conservatives. Liberals are way more open to change traditions in, in that sense. But if they are very heavily meat committed, they might be scoring lower or endorsing less species attitudes. Individualistically, they might still be very attached to their meat. So also the taste and the appetite for different products uh, need to be kind of flagged as well. But they are easily more easily to convince that it's a social justice issue as well. And uh, if you can then connect it to other social justice issue, there's more opening on that side of the political spectrum to come up with these types of messagings. Unfortunately, I think also some of the strategies that companies use appeal to people on the left to make them feel less guilty. When uh, food is labeled as humane or, you know, uh, open run and whatnot, this is, pr- this is the type of thing that can allow liberals to say, oh, okay, so I'm, I'm still com- I'm eating meat, but I'm doing it in a more socially acceptable way. So it's, it gets very tricky when thinking about the, the political ideology involved. Well, it gets very tricky when you figure like you have to appeal to everybody. And <laughs> what you're saying is that the message that works for one doesn't seem to work for another. I, was, I, I think you mentioned, and I was thinking specifically about the idea of animal rights that apparently just seems wrong to some people. And, you know, and to other people like me, it seems obvious that, that in order to be protected, somebody needs rights. But is that language not good language to use when trying to appeal to people's compassion? Oh, that's a really good question. I wasn't really anticipating that question. One of the things that, uh, in my own observations about things, is that sometimes people push back on the idea that rights are being expanded um, too much. If people are very sort of traditional and conservative, they feel as though more and more groups are getting rights marriage among uh, gay people and etc and to some people thinking about animals as having rights is, a, is an extraordinarily threatening concept it's sort of uh, to some extent if animals get rights that's really going to raise the bar to making sure that humans get rights as well so I, I wouldn't we've not actually looked at that yet but I think some of the resistance to giving animal rights is sort of the recognition that if quote unquote even animals get rights then we better make sure that all humans are treated equally 
society isn't ready for that either. I mean, we look at any society, we pay women about three quarters what we pay men. We're not ready, in a sense, to actually do the hard work, even when we think we value these things. Most people in Western countries value women and think that women uh, should be paid for the work that they do. But we consistently see that there's a, there's a, a gap where women end up working, you know, essentially two months of the year for free. So there's a disconnect between what our values are and what our behaviors are, what we're willing to take action on. Yeah, it really seems that that nowhere is there a disconnect that's more profound than, than when it comes to animals. You alluded to this before, but I just kind of want to go back to it, that for some people seeing animal rights as, as an issue that's kind of on this whole spectrum of social justice issues is, is very powerful and that works. But we have all seen, such as in um, PETA's Holocaust campaign and the enormous pushback to that and in, in campaigns comparing what happened to animals to slavery, that when you compare animal abuse to a specific instance of human degradation, people get very, very angry and it seems counterproductive. I mean, it's hard to know whether it really is counterproductive or not, but it sure feels counterproductive and and feels wrong to a lot of us, I think, too, even though we agree with the sentiment, but there's something wrong in expressing it that way. And yet it's the same thing in so many ways. So I, I don't know, that wasn't a question. That was just a whole lot of thoughts I threw out there, but can, can you kind of respond to them? Yeah, so I, I think I wrote about that in my chapter as well, and like in our chapter on the psychology of speciesism, is that where, where you do it too blatantly and too kind of not taking into account people's experience and historical backgrounds, they may see it as very offensive to compare the Holocaust to animal slaughterhouses. It's not because something theoretically makes sense um, or you can actually make a case for it and during a debate or a discussion that you can just go into the streets and have this imagery there that is uh, very shocking to a lot of people. Like it's one of the fastest way to shut every conversation down, really, if you just step into their face and say, look, you're a racist or you kind of are as bad as a Nazi. People don't like to be told what they are and they definitely do not consider them all to be racist or um, or they wouldn't totally disagree, of course, that they are a neo-Nazi or something like that. Then you, you basically start discussing other subjects and distract the attention away from what you actually want to address in your campaign. And there are other considerations there as well people might actually feel that you're dehumanizing them animalistically dehumanizing them if you compare animals in a slaughterhouse to to s slavery and and so on so if you, they're not open to that conversation yet or you don't have a more approachable way to kind of start a discussion with with your audience i i don't think it's a very wise idea to to put these very blatant pictures there or uh, or slogans that make it very blunt. From the point of view of psychologists, what's become interesting is, you know, philosophers have been talking for quite a while about like, people like um, Carol Adams, who's in our book, been talking about links between meat consumption, animal exploitation, and sexism, for instance. And we're finding, I think this is what's really taking off in psychology, is there's a lot of merit to those ideas. And this is true in several ways. Uh, in, in psychology, we refer to something, it's called generalized prejudice. But people who tend to be prejudiced toward one group tend to be prejudiced toward other groups. So people that tend to be racist also tend to be sexist, tend to be homophobic, etc. 
And uh, what people are finding, and Christoph and I are doing research on this, is that people that are racist and sexist and whatnot also tend to be the most likely to be speciesist. And some of our research has been trying to understand why are these things connected? We're finding that a lot of it, we have a model, maybe Christoph might want to talk more about it, but we have a, a model called the social dominance uh, harm model that really shows these things are connected. And so in some ways, it's unfortunate if people don't want to have these discussions because it feels like the data are showing us these the are connected. I think at its core, if you accept oppression in one domain, you've opened the gates to express it in another domain. You know, if, if you're willing to exploit animals, it opens the door to exploiting women and to exploiting racialized people, right? Seeing them and recognizing that they are connected is actually one of the best, in my opinion, I think Christoph's too, is one of the best ways for social justice to happen. Rather than fighting in different camps and saying, we, can't, we have to talk about these things separately, or that's even insulting to put them together, is failing to recognize that uh, the power structures that be, they are the ones that are connecting them. And if we don't recognize that they're connected, it's really going to hamper our efforts at social justice. Yeah, actually, I mean, this is just something that we have been sort of thinking about for such a long time, but not putting into, <laughs> into these articulate words or doing the research. But this idea that they're, these issues aren't linked because because Jews are the same as animals. That's not that's not the point. The point is the mindset of the of the oppressor as as it's been expressed. Yeah. You also make the point, I think, that devaluing animals is is really crucial to the way we devalue other humans. And and we always ascribe animal characteristics to humans that we're devaluing. So they're also very, very linked in that way. Is that right? Yeah. So we go into that as well in a, in a couple of our chapters in the book. We see that dehumanization is a strategy uh, to just be, uh, to express intergroup prejudice. But that dehumanization starts really about the devaluing of animals. And if animals would not be devalued, dehumanization would kind of totally lose its value as a, as a strategy, as kind of a way, as a mechanism to express your prejudice. So if you would elevate animals to a higher moral standard, we would not start using animal names or in, in one way or another to putting other groups down to that same animal level. We would be more appreciative towards both animals and other human outgroups. Another way of thinking about that is uh, it's insulting in a sense to be called, uh, to be likened to an animal. And so that, that itself shows us the disdain or the devaluing we have for animals. In most cultures, to refer to someone as being animal-like is, is, is an insult, and it robs them of social value. So we've been looking at ways to elevate, like change people's thinking. If, if people can see more value in animals, then there's no value in describing other human groups as animal-like, as an insult. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. I mean, it brings up such fascinating questions. And powerfully, for the sake of animals, it, by connecting what we do to animals, to our attitudes towards other people, it makes it more important for people to think about who aren't ready to think about animals as important in themselves. It, showing that it's all part of the same continuum raises the whole question. It's interesting that you say that because I think that one of the reasons that psychologists are now interested in it is because it affects humans a little bit, you know, unfortunately. Yeah. But we've been able to get their attention by saying all this stuff that's going on with human animal thinking is underlying some of the you know racism and sexism and whatnot 
and people are now paying attention. I don't know whether this is where you talked about this story. I just remember reading this story, but it the way we're talking brought it to mind. It's the tea drinking apes and just about how uncomfortable people are in thinking about animals as any way other, you know, how it's almost unbearable. For, can you just tell that story a little bit? Yeah, we discussed that in one of the chapters. Uh, one, one of the, it wasn't our observation, but at a particular, if my memory of it is correct, at a zoo, I think it was chimps were trained to be able to uh, engage in a tea party. So pouring tea and sort of simulating drinking tea and whatnot. And I think they were able to do it so well that it upset people who were watching. And so they then had to sort of train them to be less human-like, to be more raucous and not able to do the tea party. People can be quite disturbed when they see that animals are human-like. It's quite threatening to learn that animals have uh, a range of emotions, um, abilities, because I think part of the infrastructure about why we're able to exploit animals so easily is thinking about them as different and thinking about them as lesser, and they don't grieve their dead, they can't think, they can't count. And our journals are becoming very full with articles showing they do all these things. Most animals uh, do care about things like uh, losing others and whatnot. So we tend to think about them as being absent of mind and ambition and uh, emotions. It's part of the way that we convince ourselves that it's okay to either exploit or I keep should also be talking about indifference. We don't just exploit animals, but we, we're indifferent to the fate of a lot of animals as well. And what's so particularly fascinating is how how vehemently we hold on to that, to those ideas. Like even when we, even when people saw these animals drinking their tea, they said, no, 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 change it. We don't want to change our minds. You know, at this particular moment, there really does, I mean, I don't want to be hopeful because that is Oh, even though I said hope is part of our strategy, it really is against my nature <laughs> at this particular moment in time. We are actually seem to be seeing some real shifts in racial attitudes and obviously also a lot of pushback. I mean, there's something going on. Do you think this is a moment for, because of the way you see these issues as on a continuum, that, that this will affect the way we see animals as well? Yeah, I think so. I think we're moving towards uh, the right direction, but there's, there's always going to be pushbacks. And, and at some points, we need to take a step back to move forward in the next decade. It's just we need to keep trying, at least. And what you see now with all these vegan businesses coming up, it seems that people do start appreciating this a lot more. There's a, a lot of things going on with the non-human animal, animal rights legislation as well where, where great apes are, are getting rights as well so people start shifting their thinking about animals but we kind of also fighting against a powerful economy that is actually sustained by animal exploitation so and the means they have to protect it is, is a lot more powerful than than the power and the means animal rights activists have so that's why it sometimes feels discouraging but I think we're definitely moving into the into the right direction here. We've seen also now with the COVID pandemic that people actually start realizing that there's so many problems with uh, the exploitation of animal that is not just affecting the exploitation of animals in itself, but we also harming ourselves and the planet. So the whole environmentalism movement is getting more and more on board with it as well. But then again, even if you just simply care about people's health, you should be questioning 
the whole system of animal exploitation. So, and I think more and more we see that people are, are starting to understand that it's not going to be easy and it's still a long way, but I think th there are moments now that we see that we, we didn't see that 10 years ago that we're seeing now. So when most of us went vegan, we thought we just have to tell everyone what's happening to animals and they'll go vegan too. I, do, you, do you remember that moment? <laughs> that very brief moment in time. And, uh, but, you know, obviously they didn't and they don't. And we've been discussing and you've done a lot of research on why they don't. But let's deal with the other question here. Why, why are vegans different? What is different about I mean, there, like I said, there are certainly a lot of people I've met in the world who are much finer in many ways than I am. So why did I stop eating animals when I found out? And why, why are the listeners of this podcast and, and you? I think one part of that answer is just a, a concern with social justice generally. I mean, I, I don't know you, but I suspect that you're interested in social justice in a broad sense as well. And uh, sort of extending that to animals probably isn't uh, you know, a, a big stretch. If you are concerned about justice generally, extending it to animals is, is very, very natural. And, and I think part of the problem is that I'm, I'm, I'm sort of moving away from vegans here for a moment, but I think a lot of people that uh, are invested in exploiting animals don't see the connections. We've done some research looking at this also that people dissociate meat from animals. When we remind people that meat comes from animals, they get, uh, you know, they get anxious. They get, they are less willing to eat meat. And that in itself shows us that there's a disconnect and there's rationalizations. I suspect some of the reasons, getting back to your answer, is probably vegans don't play the mental gymnastics game quite the same extent. They're, they're not as willing to say, to push these things out of their mind, but actually keep them at the forefront. And it's difficult, right? Animal, animal expectation is, is horrific. I mean, most people, if they were to walk through a slaughterhouse would never eat meat again. This is why slaughterhouses, you know, like Paul McCartney says, they don't have windows. They're on the outskirts of town. Most of the people that are employed in them are immigrants. Uh, most people don't want to work in these places. That's another a bit of a dirty secret. When you look at the data, it's one of the most dangerous places for a human to work is in a slaughterhouse, an abattoir. The conditions are appalling. Of course, we're learning that through COVID as well. The vast majority of people do is whatever they can to not think about the meat-animal link. And then uh, the big companies make that easy for us, right? They package the meat in ways that don't show the animals. When you look at most of the, and you go to the grocery store, if you see an animal associated with a product, it's usually not part of their flesh. Like there's been research on this. For eggs or milk, you might see a picture of a cow or a chicken. But when it comes to the actual flesh, if you're buying a pork chop, it's much less likely to have a picture of a pig on it. There's a lot of, we don't want to see it, and industry makes it easy for us not to see it. And I think vegans are different, getting back to your question. I think vegans do the hard work of reminding themselves of it on a regular basis, that I, I can't turn a blind eye to this. This is something that's important. I know what's going on. Maybe we're just not as good at it. <laughs> maybe maybe we're just not maybe cognitive dissonance is kind of a talent a survival skill maybe we just don't have as much of it and another big part of the question i don't know if christoph wants to run with this but is the empathy question too we've been talking about cognitive factors but there's definitely emotional ones too do you want to add anything on that or we know less about how empathy works towards animals at the moment but um you can see there's also the motivated empathy and if you open up to kind of and recognize that animals are deeply suffering in, in the industry, 
you can't really un unsee it anymore. So you 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 need to change your behavior. But at the same time, a lot of people are actually choosing to look away, not to empathize with that, even though they have the capacity and the ability to actually deeply care about animals. And we see that from a, a young, very young age that children are inherently interested in animals. They care about their animals, def definitely about their pets, but also if you bring small children to a farm sanctuary, they connect with these animals and they, they actually have the ability to take care of them and, and to empathize with them. But then you're kind of being socialized in the system that says we, we don't need to take care of them. And then you kind of also disconnect from them, as Gordon was explaining, like you, there's, there's no exposure to those animals anymore. And then the meat industry basically try to uh, make you believe that all these animals are happy and that are actually humanely slaughtered and things like that. But yeah, that, that could be kind of one of the ways to change people's behaviors to also work on the emotional component there and make them to empathize with the animals. One of the things you, you alluded to or, or talked about um, is sanctuaries. And I feel like sanctuaries have gone kind of through a period of being really devalued by the effective altruism movement and having to defend what they do. But if I understand correctly, you find a lot of value in them. Is that right? And And perhaps you could also offer... Something that sanctuaries, I think, have been struggling with because of this criticism is how they can make themselves the most effective. Yeah, I totally agree. There are reasons why they can see us less effective, and that's mostly financially because they're so expensive to run and to take care of. And you only reach that number of animals that you can take care of. But there are a number of other things that can be done with farm sanctuary, and that's what... The, the farm sanctuary, it's self, uh, like the organization farm sanctuary, farm sanctuary is doing as well. You combine it with education programs, you make it very accessible to the, to the public. Uh, you invite people to visit the animals and connect with real farm animals. And, and I think that option is still underexplored and we would be very interesting to see research on that, how meat eaters actually feel when they visit a farm sanctuary and to see how these animals basically live in, in more normal circumstances. And from like anecdotally, I've been bringing people to these farm sanctuaries and they really open people's eyes. They not all go vegan, but at least they appreciate that animals are sentient, that they are smart, that they are playful. And that's something people typically don't see these days. In some ways, it feels like animals need us to be thinking at all different levels, right? And so they need the we, uh, the sanctuaries and the, the the very close attention. And we also need other people to be thinking at a higher level and thinking about how can we best mobilize people and use resources. I, I think it's a bit of a mistake to think about one is important and the other isn't. And think about ways, I think what Christoph's talking about is sort of integrating them, thinking about ways that they can work together. Yeah, there's so much to... there's so much to talk about here. And I love that idea that we have to be thinking at all these different levels because it's so obviously true. There, There's so many different ways in which people go wrong in the way they think and feel about animals. It's the same as what you're seeing right now with, if someone's having trouble thinking about that, thinking about what's going on right now with COVID. Like we, we have people in hospitals, uh, you know, having apparatus, with apparatus trying to help them to breathe. Like we need, we need people, medical help right on the front lines helping these people. But we also need people sitting around tables, uh, hopefully socially distanced, to uh, think about strategies to, to, to um, you know, make the best use of money and, and whatnot. Like both of those are, are needed. You can't necessarily say 
you need to you can only think about fighting COVID at one level or the other. You need to fight it at both. And I think the animals need us thinking at multiple levels in the same way. Yeah, and I love your idea, Christoph, of of there being more research into what we intuit about sanctuaries affecting people, but we don't really have the evidence. And that could really help us direct that money rather than just saying, well, this is wasted money because all they're doing is taking care of five animals. Well, that's that's not all they're doing. But is what they're doing effective? That's so important. Any other areas of research that you would just really love to see uh, funded right now? I think all kinds of intervention strategies need to be tested thoroughly on the long term and on uh, behavioral outcomes, whether that really changes uh, dietary behavior. Because more and more research is now focused on, on these quick studies, online messaging strategies. And then we see shifts in people's attitudes in the short term. But we need to kind of be patient and set up these, these big uh, intervention design studies to see how we can actually change people's behavior in the long term, um, how um, social networks can help in, uh, in sustaining vegan diets and vegan lifestyles. Because that's also another topic we haven't talked about yet. Is kind of a lot of people turning vegan, but then there's also a huge number of, of these people that just turn back to normal. And I think one of the the main barriers there is social pressures that kind of normalize uh, non-vegan lifestyles, obviously. And it's very hard sometimes to, to sustain your vegan lifestyle or like to kind of keep on, for a lot of people, keep on being vegan. I was going to say, that's, a, that's an interesting point. And both Christoph and I are, are social psychologists. And we tend to think about when people lapse back to, uh, at least they, they try not eating meat and then they go back to eating meat. And we tend to think about, I mean, the society tends to think about that as being something about the person and it's a failing and all those types of things. But the research is showing to some extent, it's about the social structures around us. People find it very difficult, as you know, to, you know, uh, attend dinner parties and barbecues and whatnot. And also, you know, being mocked. Uh, You know, we've done some research showing that people that are vegan and vegetarian are prejudiced against and they feel it. So the social uh, infrastructure needs to change. We need to have more support for people caring about animals and being supportive of plant-based diets and all those types of things. It's, it's, we can't make it all focused on the individual. Eating meat is a social activity, and it, and, uh, it can be, certainly. It's, and it is part of our cultures. Some of the research that Christoph and I have done, which might surprise you, is that um, some people, typically those with more right-leaning political ideologies, are threatened by vegans and vegetarians. Like they actually report that you know vegans and vegetarians are are a threat. They're destroying the cultural fabric. They're trying. They've got a bigger agenda, and this is something that um, we we really need to do more research on as well. Because it, in some ways, it it's intriguing to think about people like vegans and vegetarians as being a threat. Because uh, I'm kind of entertained by it. I wish I weren't. Well, but the the problem is, is, as social psychologists, when you see a group as threatening, it justifies taking negative actions against them and and marginalizing them. So the last thing we really want is vegans and vegetarians to be seen as a threat. I was saying before, most people do want to do the right thing. Most, most, I liked what Christoph was talking about before, and uh, Roth Gerber has a chapter of this in our book about most children. Are, are drawn to animals. And we, we have to sort of socialize children to be dismissive toward animal rights. M- um, most children, a lot of children feel squeamish around eating meat and a lot of dinner table discussions don't involve where your food is coming from, especially if there are children at the table. I sometimes think about that at family get-togethers. If there was one conversation I could have that could make things awkward, 
uh, would be to talk about where your meal is coming from when there's children at the table. I think people, some people at the table would be offended and outraged if I was to do that, or if I was to take out photographs out of my pocket and show them, you know, this, this is what an abattoir looks like. And it was a bit of an irony. I would almost be accused of being abusive or something there if I was showing those types of images or having Absolutely. that type of conversation. And so, we, so knowing that uh, meat eaters see vegans and vegetarians as threatening is something I think we need to be mindful of. You know, there's, there's going to be a great deal of resistance from any movement that, that tries to change people. It's more important to be taking some baby steps in some ways. Tobias Lienart talks about some of these issues, including in our book about getting more and more people. Uh, I know lots of people, including meat eaters now, that are eating you know, plant-based burgers or are willing to try them. And you're seeing more of them in the grocery stores. And it's about sort of hitting a tipping point, getting this to become more normalized, less quote-unquote freakish behavior to be eating plants, moving where the public is, is thinking about these things. We've made considerable progress. It feels frustrating sometimes to think that why aren't we there yet? Why ha- why isn't the public? Why aren't haven't they woken up to this yet? But attitudes toward animals and uh, attitudes toward things like meat consumption have actually changed quite a bit. Uh, a lot of companies um, that are making plant based foods are becoming very profitable. Just like companies that make solar panels are becoming profitable. There is a sea change. You know, a lot of companies don't want to invest in fossil fuels anymore because that's the past. We're heading in the right direction when it comes to animals as well. It's going to become costly, a social cost, a financial cost to be exploiting animals. Right now, exploiting animals is how you make money. But I I, I can see a future in the next few decades where exploiting animals will become costly in many ways and we'll start seeing things change. One of the other aspects of that, what we called uh, vegetarianism or veganism to meat eaters is is also attached to the masculinity threat that people feel because they see meat consumption as inherently masculine. So if you take away the the masculinity from especially men, then of course they feel less manly. This is all kind of inherently based in our in our cultural system. So if you can move uh, some of those symbols, those masculine values and make veganism also more attractive for, for men. And, and you see some of these documentaries are, are now trying to uh, highlight that you don't need to be eating meat to be super strong and to, you can be an ultimate fighter based on a plant-based diet. You can shift these symbolic values as well on that front. That's an interesting example also because it's true, the mixed martial arts and whatnot, some of the to- world's top athletes are going vegan. But it speaks to Christoph's point because some of them will be quite vocal about saying they're doing it for health reasons. They're not doing it for animals. So you can even sense there is a threat to their masculinity. It would seem like a great opportunity, even if you were doing it for health reasons, to say, yeah, I care about animals. But uh, meat and masculinity are so tightly wound together that even people that are reducing their meat and seeing the upsides and the benefits themselves still want to distance themselves from anything that would undermine their masculinity. I think this is another uh, area where we desperately need more research. Yeah, I guess it's it's partly also because it's seen that like empathizing with animals or empathizing in general in general and taking care of others is is seen as very feminine. Well, that it shouldn't be like that. It should be kind of seen as something good for for a human being, of course. So if you can kind of make it like less gender stereotypical and kind of shift the uh, the perceptions of these values and, and, and these attributes of people, we go a long way in open people's uh, minds about taking care of our animals as well. 
everything you've said makes me think that the more we do, the for the the more we'll accomplish. Like even even small steps forward get us to a better place of acceptance. And and you two are men, from what I can see. And here you are. So even the men might might come along. Who knows? <laughs> I won't get started on on that issue. It's been such a pleasure. I, th- there's so much more we could cover and it's been such a pleasure to have you on. And I highly recommend that people get the book because it is about all the things that we all want to know about and all think about all the time. And, and thank you so much for your work in it and for putting it together. Yes. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you very much, Marianne. It, uh, we really appreciate the opportunity here. Very nice to hear you find it so interesting. Hi, everybody. This is Jasmine. And this is Marianne. And we have a very important announcement for you today, which is to please join the flock already. (laughs) Yeah, I guess we've never, we've probably never mentioned that before, right? I don't think we have, no. Mm -mm. (laughs) Yeah, but it's like now is more important than ever to join it because now is when we really need media that is speaking the truth about animals. And that is what our hen house does. So by joining the flock, you are supporting media such as our hen house to keep going. And we literally could not do it without your support. So for $10 a month or $100 a year, you will become part of this super special insider crew, the flock. Yes. And in addition to supporting us, which is really the reason we hope that you will join the flock, we try to make it worth your while. And I think we really do because we've got this terrific flock page, which is a private Facebook page only for members of the flock. And the conversations there of late have been outstanding. So good. I know. It's like a private only Facebook group just for the flock. It's thought provoking. It's supportive. It's encouraging. And there's lots of resources there that I didn't know about. And so I'm just always so grateful to our conversations there. And in addition to that, we provide bonus flock only content every single week. It's like an additional little podcast just for you for the flock. And it's fantastic. Yeah, actually, you know, it was it was a big decision to start doing that because it was a lot of extra work right in the beginning. But now that we've got it going, I'm so glad we did because I really love those little interviews. They, I think they're turning out great. They really are. They are sort of blowing my mind every week, week after week. So join the flock by going to ourhenhouse.org, clicking on donate. And for $10 a month or $100 a year, you will become a flock member. And we will also be offering you exclusive access to our undying love and affection. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, everybody. Thanks if you're in the flock already. And thanks if you're about to be. Thank you. Anxieties rising. This is from Drovers.com from one of our favorite commentators, Hannah Thompson Weeman. Activists set sights on 4-H and FFA despite fewer fares. One of the problems that that, uh, Hannah in particular has in the, in the current atmosphere, but even all the time, is that she has to keep coming up with ways in which the industry should be afraid of animal activists because that's kind of her beat. So she has to keep publishing these stories. And though there aren't any fairs going on, these county and state fairs where 4-Hers and others present their um, their their prize animals, she still has to write a column. So apparently she's coming up with ways that activists have been attacking these programs online. I hope she's right. I hope this is really going on. She wants everybody to have a plan in place and be prepared for protests or disruptions from group like, groups like Direct Action Everywhere, the SAVE Movement, or PETA. Even though fairs are looking different this year, 
That doesn't mean we can take a break from the threat of activism. And she points out that activists have taken the current circumstances. We're taking advantage of what's going on. And, and the fact that there aren't these public events as an opportunity to ramp up their online efforts, including ones targeting 4-H and, and future farmers of America. And so she has a lot of advice for everybody, as she always does. First, avoid the urge to engage. I'm all for that. If they want to leave this alone, if it's going on, sounds good to me. Stay out of it, folks. But her second piece of advice is that people need to understand our real intentions and that activist groups are trying to encourage youths. And this is a big project. And I don't know how how much they're, they're going after it this year, but they're trying to encourage youth to give them their project animals in order to spare them from being sold in auctions, which is a nice euphemism for being <laughs> sold and then being having their throats slit. Some of these kids actually uh, grow fond of these animals who they spend a lot of time with and would prefer not to see their throats slit. We've heard of a lot of people who become activists as a result of uh, being in 4-H and having this happen to their animals. Anyway, she has advice for people uh, and for parents who have this problem. It's important to understand and especially help younger members understand. Target them when they're really young. That's what you need to do. That, quote, considering doing this will give them credibility and more content they can try to use against 4-H, FFA, and fairs. So it's really important to talk kids out of this. That's <laughs> what she's trying to, to tell us. She wants people to, quote, make sure you are having conversations with kids throughout the process of raising project animals about their important role in providing food for a hungry world and our important responsibility in raising them ethically. Ah, uh, yeah. It's, it's 4-H it really is. It's just child abuse. It's talking kids out of their natural affinity for animals and telling them that they're providing food for a hungry world, which is nonsense since it's much healthier for everybody to be vegan. And our important responsibility in raising them ethically. And, you know, certainly not all 4-H projects are ethical. I recently had a personal uh, encounter with one that was horrible and was closed down. And... Some of them, I'm sure some kids take really, really good care of these animals. But what does that have to do with modern agriculture? Absolutely nothing. Modern animals in agriculture are not raised the way 4-H animals are raised in the best of circumstances. So it's all just nonsense. She also wants people to be prepared for online attacks and to have a comment policy ready so that they can delete us. Okay. Be prepared to be deleted if you go on these sites. I don't know whether anybody is, as I said, but, you know, Hannah's on the job. All right. From Drovers.com, Burger King ditches TV ad, asks leading extension scientists for help. Well, we should have seen this coming. I reported last week on this Burger King commercial, which you may have seen, in which they were touting their uh, giving lemongrass to their cow's feed to cut down on their methane emissions. And uh, this made me mad. I imagine it made you mad. It sounded like nonsense and, and trying to whitewash the horrors of animal agriculture. But as we talked about last week, it also made the animal agriculture industry mad. They don't like people talking about methane emissions on TV. As this article points out, quote, Burger King pushed a lot of animal agriculture's buttons last week with its new commercial released July 14th, touting the use of lemongrass in cows' diets to reduce methane emissions by quote, up to 33%. Well, they brought on board our favorite scientist, Frank Mitloiner, like their only scientist who they drag out all the time. He's from the University of California, Davis. 
Department of Animal Science, and he is the industry's friend, especially on the climate argument. And members of the livestock industry and Mitloiner reacted quickly. One of the things they were really offended by is the the reference to cow farts in, in the ad, which was trying to be funny. It's not the cow farts, all caps. And, you know, that's really true. I'm not going to deny that. I don't care. Like, it's true that most of the methane, uh, which, you know, Frank says, you know, we really do need to reduce, is from their breathing, not from their farts. Though there is, uh, they're apparently producing methane all over the place. But more important, Mitloiner agrees with my guess as to this is that in that he says that he doubts lemongrass at the level the company will feed it will have the desired effect. So, yeah, uh, looks like the industry agrees with us on this one. Of course, what they've now talked Burger King into doing is taking out the content that was demeaning to farmers. I don't remember what that was. And, and maybe that was about the cow farts. And pulling the content from all TV stations and hiring Mitloiner. The company also asked Mitloiner to work with them moving forward. Do you think he's going to do that for nothing? I don't know. Maybe he is. They have asked me to cooperate with them in order to infuse science-based research on the one hand and get communication out and check it before it reaches the masses. So from now on, Frank Mitloiner will be, quote-unquote, fact-checking the industry's, or at least Burger King's, uh, commentary on on climate. Finally, from MeetingPlace.com, from the Pearls and Pork column. It's so cute. Pearls and Pork by Angie Krieger. COVID, the disruptive opportunity. This really brings in, uh, Angie starts off by talking about how great she is and, and she's never been afraid of change and, and she, she's, she's had the opportunity to, over the course of her career to help lead big organizations. And she's in love with herself, let's face it. So she's now talking about the pandemic and she sees it kind of in a positive light. Like it or not, compared to other areas of our economy, animal protein production has not innovated at the pace it needs to. <gasps> what a confession. And so she has ideas for how the pandemic can help the industry move into the future. And, uh, you know, this is something we know about, but we cannot ignore it because it is so horrifying, so Orwellian, so loathsome that we have to be prepared. I mean, they realize that their current way of doing work is not only too labor intensive, so they have to, even though they don't pay people well, they have to pay them. And now it's become dangerous for them to operate in close quarters. And, you know, they don't really have a way to fix that, as we pointed out. Now, says Angie, more than ever, we must accelerate our move toward automation and integrate advanced technology. And uh, she wants to do this in order to improve visibility, safety, and animal welfare. Well, do you really think that the animals are uh, going to benefit from this? Once again, these living, breathing creatures are becoming more and more just cogs in this in this grinding machinery. And, the, you know, they're not even going to be any people left to see what's going on and and to be a part of the of the whole process of turning living, breathing, sensitive creatures into meat. She concludes by saying, as the global pandemic accelerates transformation of society, our industry has a once in a lifetime opportunity and responsibility to act. Let's channel those experiences that held us through the acute onset of the COVID-19 crisis into rebuilding our long-term livelihoods and securing a bright future for generations to come. No, the future has to be to get animals out of this horrific, 
horrific nightmare. And do you think they're going to try doing this without like looking for a lot of federal funding and using what happened during COVID-19 as the excuse for why the taxpayers should pay to automate their their processes? There's a big fight coming and and we need to win it. And we need to win it with meat that is not from animals. And that's it from this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. As always, if you like the podcast and you're able in these difficult times, you can support us by joining our flock at ourhenhouse.org slash donate for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you can make whatever donation you're comfortable with. Another great way to support us is to leave a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to podcasts or like us on Facebook. You could also leave us a review there or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at at ourhenhouse. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, and to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast, and to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Podcast Haven for their work editing this podcast, and to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez. We will be back next week with a brand new show, so don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're a Flock member, remember to check your email or the Flock Facebook group on Tuesday for your bonus content and join us on Fridays for Flock Fridays, where we do some really cool Zooms that you'll want to join. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Jasmine Singer, and be safe out there. Social distance, stay home, wash your hands, and listen to podcasts.